right? We got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. that. We don't got time for that. Right? Let's go. Crank it. Crank it, Glenn Cross. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Nick Schwert and Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Bill Self still has one scholarship to give out. Technically, he has three. What if... The July 7th is the withdrawal date for the NBA draft early entries. So that's, I mean, you get two months from today if you're Ochai and Jalen, which is so long. It's so long to make a decision. And it's such a, a long amount of time for Bill Self to be kind of kept waiting as to what to do. Because by July 7th, if you're planning on them coming back and you save those scholarships and they let you know, hey, coach, things went really well at the NBA Combine. I think I'm going to go ahead and... Uh, Keep my name in the draft. You would have nothing to do with those scholarships, right? Would you really go into the season with two empty scholarships? No, no, you wouldn't. I mean, well, think who are you about gonna it. Give them to. Well, I, don't you think there's going to be a couple like surprise grad transfers that end up on the market late because of a couple draft decisions? Like maybe a guy unexpectedly comes back and he's like, "Oh no, I got a transfer." You know, so that could or happen. just a guy who comes back and says. I'm not coming back to my yeah, old school. That could happen. Um, you also have the situation where like a guy reclassifies. I remember Marvin Bagley reclassified in like August. It was that late? Yeah, it was like August. There's always tricks. You're right. There's always something that you can do to to work around it. Yeah, it, it's it's nearly impossible to imagine KU going into a season with two empty scholarships and being like, oh, we didn't know. We've we seen no one idea. before though. We've seen yeah. them have an open scholarship for a full year. Yeah, but two would be a lot. Mm-hmm. Big difference between one. One is an accident. One is like uh, some, a freak accident with nothing we could do about it. Two is, are you kidding me? Two scholarships? I don't think that'll happen. But I do think they're treating it right now as if they only have one left. And for the past month and a half, it seemed pretty clear they're trying to save that scholarship for a guard, specifically a point guard. I mean, you look at the the crop of players that they brought in. They have sort of retooled the front court with KJ Adams and Zach Clements and Cam Martin and Sidney Curry. That's four new additions in the front court. You look at the names that they lost: Jethro Muscadine, Tyon Grant Foster, Tristan and Aruna. You took three forwards and you replaced them with four. Right? Like, like that's effectively what you've done. But in the front court, or in the back court, there, there really hasn't been a ton of change. You brought in Kyle Cuff. You brought in Bobby Pettiford. You brought in Joe Yesifu from Drake. But among those three guys, Yesifu's the only one I think you can point to and say, 100% going to play a significant role in this team. Like I think Bobby Pettiford's going to play. We'll see about Cuff. The scouting report on him is that he's just a really good athlete. How much is that going to translate? We have no idea. 
especially considering he's young, reclassified, might be a little raw still. Who knows how ready he's going to be to compete right away. And you look at the guys he's going to be competing with four minutes. Like, is Kyle Cuff going to play ahead of Christian Brown, who is, what, a 20-minute-per-game player as a freshman and a full-time starter as a sophomore? It's going to be tough to beat him out. I mean, with the way he finished the season, I was already kind of preconditioned to think that, okay, if KU goes out and gets another point guard alongside Yesifu, that's your starting backcourt. And Christian Brown's the first guy off the bench. But I'll also be the first to admit, Bill Self's not just going to take a starting spot away from, from Brown. Like, there's going to be open competition. And would it shock you is if when that competition starts, that Christian Brown's back to knocking down 40% of his threes, and all of a sudden you say, hmm, going to be kind of tough to keep this guy off the court. That's very plausible. And if that is the case, then maybe Joe Yesifu is your starting point guard. And you just say, you know what? He's not the best creator. He's not a natural facilitator. But he's a natural scorer. He's one of our five best players. Let's just put our most talented lineup on the floor together and figure out a way to make it work. As opposed to our best point guard is our eighth best player. But we need a natural distributor, so we're going to put him on there. Because at this point, doesn't it seem like that's going to be the case? Whether you you decide that your best point guard is Dewan Harris or uh, Bobby Pettiford or whoever else you give this scholarship to. Because Xavier Wheeler, who was a four-star recruit coming out of high school, played two years at Georgia in the transfer portal. He uh, trimmed his list to four today. Kansas is on it along with Kentucky, Oklahoma State, and LSU. Even if he's that guy. So if it's any one of those three guys or uh, another guy to be named later that we don't know about, it seems pretty obvious to me at this point that none of those three guys are going to be one of your five best players. Like, I would say this past year, KU started their five most talented players. Wouldn't you agree? Was there anybody who was coming off the bench who'd say he's better than one of the starters, but it just doesn't matter because it doesn't make sense from a, a lineup perspective? No, probably not. When's the last time, let's just go back through the years. When's the last time where you felt like one of KU's five best players was coming off the bench? Yeah. I mean, you could, if you want to get like pick nits, so to speak, you could say the way Dewan Harris played in March, he was playing better than Christian Brown, but. Yeah. I mean, that's splitting hairs. And it's, and it's tough to tell, okay, is it because he's better or is it because Christian Brown just finished the season right. with a dud, right? Go back to 2020. I mean, it's going to be really tough to argue. You could argue Christian Brown was better than Isaiah Moss, but Isaiah Moss filled a role and like, they were pretty comfortable moving forward with that. So I wouldn't argue with anything there. 2019. Maybe. Who? Wait. Uh. Hmm? Did they start Dave next to to Diedrich? I don't even know if you'd argue that Dave At was... the end of the year, yeah. I'm trying to think who was coming off the bench for that team. Well, was Ochai starting or coming off the bench? Ochai joined the season... You had Devon, Grimes, Garrett, Diedrich... And was Dave starting next to him? I think Ochai was coming off the bench. You could probably make that argument that Ochai would have been better than Dave, twenty nineteen. Ochai became a starter about a month to go in the regular season. 
I remember he started that game against Texas, but they lost. Uh, the But the, the lineup for the last month of the season was pretty consistent with Devon, you know, LeGerald left the team. Ochai became the star. No, actually, when LeGerald left the team, it was Dave who took his spot. Yeah. Ochai was already starting at that point with Grimes, Diedrich, and Dave. So Garrett wasn't starting. Correct. Okay, that's one I would argue then. He got injured, missed some games, came back, and didn't start at the end of the season. Wow, Marcus Garrett getting slighted? Wow. That coach who loved him on... Undearingly. Um, yeah, it just doesn't ever happen, man. Like, you usually you just find a way to put your five best guys on the floor. So, if we're to say that, do we already know who the starters are? Unless you think one of the guys that is going to be added is going to be one of the five best players? No, I think the only way that's the case, I mean, the names you threw out there, it's Ty Ty Washington. I and think it, outside of that. I don't think they're getting him. Right. So, outside of that. I mean, unless, like we said, if some, like, surprise grad transfer, it's like, oh, Marcus Carr came here like that was unexpected, you know, unless something like that. Um, yeah, I think we I think we know the five starters with the caveat that one of the starters is one of two players. Is that fair? Yeah, probably. So you have six players for five spots? Yeah. I'll tell you what, the guy I'm really high on is Bobby Pettiford. I really wouldn't be surprised if he ends up being a starter on this team. And you put him next to... Joe Yesifu, and you just go with uh, athletic, aggressive, scoring backcourt. And you say there's not a lot of dis- distribution there, but you got shooters at both those spots. And if you put that next to Ochai and Jalen, that's four shooters on the court. Yeah, the way that I see Bobby Pettiford is the way that, like, you know, I, I don't want to make this comparison because you're going to turn in this guy, but just, like, Frank Mason, how he came aboard with KU – as a freshman. If you remember Frank Mason, like played kind of sparingly early in his career, um, was the backup to Nadir Tharp. And as the season went on, he got more and more minutes. He never like fully usurped Nadir Tharp, I don't think. No, never did. No. Yeah, but he he eventually got to a point where he would play, you know, 15, 20 minutes a game. That's kind of how I view Bobby Pettiford. Like at, at the start of the season, I'm not sure how much he's gonna play, but I could see him kind of carving out a role as the season goes on to where we head into the next season, 2022, 2023. And Bobby Pettiford's going into his sophomore year, and we're like, oh, we're, we're excited for him to yeah. be a starter. I, I mean, it's, it's tough to tell scouting reports on some of these guys. The one thing that stood out to me about Pettiford that I would be a little afraid of is, like, his, his handles didn't seem super tight. I know he's an improved shooter. He was never known as a shooter for most of his prep career. Then I think he jumped up from being a 29 to a 39% three-point shooter. Stroke looks really good, though. Like, if you watch him on film, that does not look like a guy who, oh, I can see why he's not shooting at a high percentage. Like, it's a really pretty jumper. And it looks, it's not like a set jumper where he takes a lot of time to get into it. Like, it's pretty smooth, and he gets into it pretty quickly. So, I'm excited about him. He's athletic. He can drive downhill and and score at the rim. Again, don't know how good of a facilitator he is. But at this point, you have to just kind of ask yourself, what does this team need? And I would be willing to hear either side of the argument, because Severe Wheeler is not a scorer. He averaged, I think, 13, 14 points per game this past season, but he's not a good shooter. Uh, His... His three-point numbers are pretty low. He's a decent free-throw shooter, which a lot of times is a good indicator of somebody who has the potential to be a good shooter, but through two seasons, hasn't been great. The flip side of that, 
He played on a really, really, really lousy Georgia team that didn't have a lot of talent around him. The team as a whole was one of the worst shooting teams in the country. So, uh, but you don't know. And like, unless you're watching the games, you don't know exactly how he gets to those shooting numbers. You don't know how he gets to the turnover numbers, which were really, really high. I think he was tied for second nationally in turnovers per game, about four and a half per game. But even with that, here's what's so crazy, is even with those high turnover numbers, he averaged four and a half turnovers per game. He still was number one in the SEC in assist-to-turnover ratio. So this guy is a true point guard. And if you're looking for more competition at that spot to get a true facilitator and somebody who's not going to be asked to score, but to simply facilitate for others, also really strong on defense, like, there, there, there's a chance that he could come in and compete for that spot right away. It's just hard to know without knowing exactly what this coaching staff is looking to add in the backcourt. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm not really that interested. Like, Kevin Flaherty for 24-7 Sports, he sent me something yesterday. Uh, the idea that it's just, oh, it's all because his teammates were bad. Well, you would think that, you know, if it was just a, an issue of your teammates, that would mean that you're not open, right? On unguarded jump shots. So these are shots that he's open. So it wouldn't matter who your teammates are because they got you open. Unguarded jump shots, he was in the second percentile in the country in shooting. So I, I, I don't really buy, if he does get the last scholarship, I don't know, maybe he will. Um, if he does take that last roster spot, I'm not buying him as a contender for that spot. To me, it's between Yesifu or Dewan Harris. I, and I don't know. I, I feel like because the fact that KU lost in the second round and you get blown out to USC, you just don't really think back to the positive performances of the brief NCAA tournament for KU. And if you remember, like, Dewan Harris was one of KU's better players in both the NCAA tournament games. Like, he was he was more aggressive with his jump shot, and, and I don't know if that was just something where they told him beforehand in the scouting report, like, we need you to shoot these shots, or if it was just a progression of himself and kind of coming into his own. Maybe that game he had against Baylor where he comes up with, it's only a couple shots, but they're both big hits, give him more confidence. I don't know. But if he continues to play like that guy that we saw in the NCAA tournament, like to me, I think he's going to start. Yeah. I mean, he... Because every everything... People thought he was going to compete for the starting spot last year. Yeah, but I, I thought that was premature. But like everything you said about Severe Wheeler, can't really shoot it, good passer, does that not just describe Dewan Harris, except he's had a year in the system? Except with Dewan, it's a little bit, bit different. It's not that he can't shoot it. It's just that he hasn't shown a knack to shoot it a lot, whereas Wheeler is more of a chucker. Like, I think I saw a number today that Savon Wheeler, uh, his shots away from the rim. So this is two-point jump shots. This is, like, floaters at the free throw line. This is three-point shots all added up. Percentage is 23%. So, with Dewan, you don't have, like, a low percentage. Like, he shot well percentage-wise from three. He just didn't take a lot of them. So, I I don't know. I, I kind of think that Dewan Harris, like, it's his almost job to lose. And if Yesifu ends up starting, it's going to be next to Dewan Harris. I think there's a decent chance that they just say, okay, if, if, this is our, if these are our options, I go back to square one. Put our five best players on the court. And if that's the case, it's probably Yesifu and it's probably Christian Brown as your two starting guards. And you just say, okay, we're not going to put a distributor on the court. That's fine. Uh, we did it just fine for two years with Devon Dotson. Didn't really make much of a difference. right? Yeah. Like, there's this thing where, where if you've got these 
these true point guards who can average five, six, seven assists per game that, oh, your offense just runs so much more smoothly. Well, yeah, but also some of the best KU teams that Bill Self has had has not had a primary distributor that's out there. Yeah, I would tell you this. Yes, if who's not known for being a distributor, I'll bet you this. Bet you he comes to Kansas and those assist numbers go up. Bet you he comes to Kansas and they say, okay, here's the deal, bud. We're going to hand you the keys to this offense. You can be our guy, but you're going to have to change your game just a little bit. We still want you being that alpha. Go and look for your shot. Be that dynamic playmaking score that you, sh- you proved to be over the last month and a half of the season at Drake. But also, like this offense isn't going to be the Joe Yesifu show. There's a lot of talented players, and with your ability, there's no reason why you can't be that guy. Like Devon Dotson was not a playmaker. He did not create for others. Uh, even, I think you go back and, and look at something like Frank Mason averaged, I think, five assists per game. It doesn't blow you away by saying, oh, wow, what a great facilitator. But what he what was he? He was so good at getting to his spots and just being a good decision maker. Like, being a good decision maker and being a good playmaker, they're completely individual characteristics and traits that a basketball player can have, but they also are very intertwined if you want them to be. And I, it just wouldn't shock me if they say, okay, we don't need a two-point guard this year. See, I think you're looking at this as it's almost between, like, Yesifu and Dwan Harris. I'm almost looking at it as I think it's between Dwan Harris and Christian Brown. What, so what, do, you, what do you mean? For the, for, okay, like, if we're to assume that Ochai and Jalen come back, they'd both be starters. Yeah. Um, Dave, obviously, is a starter. So that's three of your spots, right? If we both assume that Yesifu is the, the other starter, then you have one starting spot left. Mm-hmm. So you could play the two guards together with Harris and Yesifu, or you could play what would be a slightly bigger role than have another wing with Christian Brown. I almost view it as going, I, I know Christian Brown started this year, but I think that was more about, you know, a fit because if you if you put Harris out there with Garrett, that's a little more problematic than if you have Harris and Yesifu, for instance. Yeah. I mean, it just depends what you want. It depends what you value because they're completely different players. They are completely different players. And honestly, players. like, it probably doesn't matter, right? Like, they're both going to play 25 minutes a game or whatever. I don't yeah. Know, maybe you're not there on Harris, but... I'm not. I'm not. I think... Uh, I, I just, like, what's Bobby Pettiford going to bring to the table? If this is a guy who is super... Because, like, the one thing about him that they... that Like, a lot of the scouting reports say on Pettiford is he is aggressive, right? And he likes to get the ball and go downhill and make plays. Now, if that results in him turning the ball over every other possession, then, okay, boom. Like, you're not going to play. It's going to take you a year. Well, you know what's funny? Like... With the way that the transfer portal is gone and everything, there is such a fine line between, and like Bobby Pettiford will be this guy. I mentioned the the idea of the blueprint that Frank Mason came in. Frank Mason is a freshman, plays 15 minutes a game, and you go into his mm-hmm. sophomore year and say, we're, we're excited about Frank Mason. There's such a fine line between that to where it's like, oh, he did well as a freshman, and now there's an avenue for bigger playing time as a sophomore to oh, it just didn't go well as a freshman, and now he's transferring out, and now we're just done talking about this kid. We move on very quickly. I know. We jump from uh, from puddle to puddle, whatever is the uh, the shiny new toy. But th- that's the thing. I think more than anything else, competition. That's what Bill Self wanted. And I bet you they're sitting there today they have no clue. They have no clue how this backcourt's going to shake out, and they don't really care. They say, let's get all these guys in here. Let's let them go at it. Like, they probably want Dewan Harris to sweat. They probably want Christian Brown to sweat. They want them to say, oh, yeah, you thought you had a spot? Oh, okay, we'll see. Because those guys might feel slighted. They might be sitting there thinking, well, I'm not good enough. I haven't put in enough work. You don't see enough in me. 
That's what they want to get out of them. They want to say, yeah, you got a little fat and happy the last couple of years because you had zero competition trying to take minutes away from you. That's not going to be the case anymore. If you're still the guy, then go out and prove it. Dwan Harris, you thought you were in line to be the starter? Okay, well, now you got to work for it. Now it's not an offseason where it's like, I'm the man. No, now it's an offseason where i got three guys who are coming trying to not just take my starting spot away from me, but take my minutes away from me. Nothing is guaranteed. I love it. And that's why I think they're still going to go out and bring another point guard. They're going to make that as fierce of a competition as they possibly can and just let the, the process play out naturally. We're going to talk to Brandon McAnderson coming up here in uh, about 15 minutes or so. Lance Leipold made his Hawk Talk debut with Brian Haney last night. Had some interesting comments. We'll share a few of them with you coming up next. Get your car washed because it's probably dirty right now. Whether it's, you know, washing all the germs out, you want to get obviously the germs out of your car, but also you want it to look really nice. Go to Tommy's Express Car Wash. It's wash, rinse, repeat with Tommy's. And guess what? They have an app. It's the Tommy Club app. So download it. I know you have a smartphone, so you're going to be able to download apps. You don't have a flip phone if you're listening to this podcast. I'm just assuming that. And if you do, more power to you. But if you do, then you're missing out on this great deal. Because if you download the Tommy Club app today, you're going to enjoy endless washing for one low price. Endless washing for one low price at Tommy's Express Car Wash. That's unlimited car washes, unlimited clean, shiny, and dry. Unlimited use of exclusive app lane at Tommy's. Unlimited access to all the Tommy's locations. And there are a lot of them. Unlimited guest service. Most importantly, unlimited happiness. That's a Tommy's Express Car Wash. So Lance Leipold has sort of shared his vision and his plan for rebuilding the Kansas football program. It's honestly, it's not all that different from what other coaches have said. What I think is going to be different is how he goes about it. And that is the unknown. That's the question that we're just going to have to wait and see how it plays out. We can make our guesses. And maybe uh, I'll get a few predictions from our next guest, former Kansas running back, Orange Bowl champion, now with the Jayhawk Radio Network. Brandon McAnderson joining us once again on the show. BMAC, last night on Hawk Talk, Lance Leipold spoke to the importance and the emphasis that he's going to put on going out and recruiting the backyard, recruiting the state of Kansas. Every coach that I can remember being hired at Kansas over the past decade has said that, but Few of them have been successful in doing it. So before we get into Leipold, why do you think that is? Why do you think that so many coaches have either been, is, is, it, is it unsuccessful in their attempt to, or is it just not going about it the right way? I think it's their, their national appeal. So I think if you look all the way down the line, Turner Gill being the first one after Mangino, you know, he was really got a lot of credit for getting Texas guys to Buffalo because you knew he had those Texas connections and people saw that as this amazing feat. So he was kind of, I mean, he wasn't really known as primarily recruiter, but he got a lot of credit for recruiting Texas. Charlie Weiss, a national candidate, you know, known for Patriots, you know, Notre Dame and then being the Florida offensive coordinator, uh, Beatty being a, um, Texas recruiting-based guys. That's kind of how he's risen in this business from having successful Texas recruits and then Les Miles with LSU being a former national champion and, 
you know, we know his resume. I think that was the issue more than anything else. I think when you look at that, they're looking at it from a national perspective. They don't see winning a recruiting battle for a state that doesn't have that many prospects as principal to their success. Obviously, that's been a mistake. And there's been a lot of good players uh, from the state of Kansas, more than there used to be, that have really contributed in the Big 12 and other major conferences. I think the difference is, is that, and there's tons of differences, but Leipold is from a place where there is no recruiting base. You've got to get what you can get. You've got to find athletes. You've got to develop them. Uh, Kansas is not in that dire of strengths, but it's very true that winning a local recruiting battle can, can pay dividends, even if they're long-term projects that – that find comfort in walking onto the program, you know, kind of what we've seen at Kansas State. A lot of those guys were walk-ons and have come become contributors during their careers. So I think it's just a different approach and a different understanding of how to get the best out of players and where to get those players. So is it all about emphasis and an effort, or is there going to have to be some repairs made to perhaps the relationships that have been damaged by previous coaching staffs? I think they're going to have to go in and repair some stuff. And the reason I say that is because just, you know, someone that if you, if you follow this at all, <laughs> you see that there's a lot of prospects in the metro area. A lot of the prospects are in North Kansas City. You know, those Park Hill places, you know, Lincoln Prep, places like that on the Missouri side, at least on the uh, Blue Springs. And then some sprinkled in on from the EK on the Sunflower League. But generally just a more, just a wider, broader area. But if you go a little bit further south, it's really the Wichita area that produces most of the players. That area, Wichita, Salina, Western Kansas, has been bolstered by uh, Jake Sharp and Sharp Performance. He's given a lot of those guys a platform to become recruited players. Him being a Kansas guy, he's had trouble reaching and, and building communications with this coaching staff. And, and that's just a small thing that could easily be overcome by a past relationship. I mean, he's alumni. He had a great career here. He's given a platform to some less heralded players from some less heralded areas. Those guys are going on to Kansas State and contributing. A guy from our backyard, uh, Echo Boydo, um, Keenan Garber. So they didn't grow up rooting for Kansas because there wasn't a whole lot to root for. So they're going to have to build those relationships organically through, you know, going out and talking to people and building trust back in the program. Yeah, that's something that uh, he talked a lot about last night was going out and, and recruiting those under-recruited areas, getting the unrecruited guys and, and not really worrying so much about stars next to the names of recruits. What was interesting, though, and I brought this up a million times this week, but what was interesting was that at his press conference earlier this week, he didn't really talk about that at all, BMAC. Like, unprompted, he, he didn't sit there and and talk about how he was going to build strong recruiting classes and they were going to go out and, and hammer it and make that the top priority. And it's not as though that struck me as, oh, he doesn't care about recruiting. It's that he understands that the foundation of this is going to be getting the right guys and it's going to be about developing those guys, which is a very different approach than we've seen other coaches take when they have took over at Kansas. Did that stand out to you at all? It does, and it kind of goes to my initial point that if you're known for recruiting, if you got the job because of your recruiting chops, that's what you're going to talk about. If you're going to sell somebody on your program and all you've ever been able to do is prove that you can recruit, of course, that's what you're going to talk about. You know, And I think that even for an extent with Les Miles, 
you know, immediately when he got here, the Kansas started to get attention from higher rated recruits than they normally would. You know, guys that were at least putting Kansas in their top five, talking about their communication with Les Miles, you know, the, the Tyron Matthew thing. So there was a lot tied to Les Miles has coached all these NFL players. He knows all these talents and he's closing all these talented guys coming to Kansas. So, of course, he's going to sell us on that. Same for a guy like Beatty, who that's what he was known for, recruiting. So every chance he got, he talked about recruiting. Same thing for Charlie Wise. I got Dane Chris coming in here. And did, is, did he say the uh, decided schematic advantage? Yes. He never yes. committed to that. He, he did commit to bringing in players he used to coach and tell us how good they were, and almost none of them worked out. So I think that's part of that's part of the problem in the past with Kansas is that – this football program hasn't made a lot of good football decisions with their staff. It's usually non-football reasons. And I, when I say non-football reasons, I mean recruiting is part of that. You don't hire a guy that can, because he can just recruit as your head coach because there's way more to developing a winner at the University of Kansas than recruiting. Um, so there's just a lot that goes into that. And I think that's what you saw, just someone that's not bullying one element of his coaching over another. He's saying, I'm a program builder. I'm going to show you how I build a program and, and let my work speak for itself, which is much different than what we've had here recently. Have you talked to many of uh, either your former teammates or just uh, former football alums? And what has been sort of the, the reaction to Leipold so far? So I think it's kind of mixed just because, you know, his, his route to coaching is so unique. You know, being a D1 assistant and going backwards, and then coming back up to Buffalo, it's just not, you know, people aren't following the Mac. You know, we don't have people, a lot of people that I played with aren't from that area, uh, didn't get recruited by Mac schools. So there's no real familiarity. All they'd be going off of is, you know, watching a film and gauging the reactions. But ultimately, he has a profile of a lot of coaches. You know what I mean? And that's kind of how this goes. That's why this is such a difficult job and such a difficult choice when you're picking a head coach, is that his profile is unique in that, he was so dominant at his uh, alma mater. But post that, his stint at Buffalo is similar to a lot of other coaches that we've had, um, you know, the Turner Gill types, guys that had some level of success. But it kind of under, undermines what he was able to build in such a short amount of time, and it undermines what he was able to build at the Division three level um, at his alma mater. So I think there's some mixed feelings about it, not because of what what is known, but what's not known. is always always the, the thing to ask more questions. I know personally, I just watch a bunch of films and I kind of gauge my response off of that. You know, I was watching their, their ball state championship team today just to see what kind of defense they run and imagine how some of these players fit. And I'm really excited about it. I think they do some good things and I think it'll translate to, to a successful program. What stood out to you schematically? What stood out to me defensively was that they played base defense. And that sounds like, you know, everything you'd hear anywhere. But, but Kansas has been playing a hybrid defense uh, under Coach Bowen and under D.J. Elliott to where there's a guy that's kind of a linebacker safety who kind of gives you the ability to play coverage and, and you know, kind of gives you the ability to, to play in the box and make tackles in the run game. The problem is, is that player for us has not really been a hybrid player size, stature, ability. It's been more like they're good at one thing and not good at the other or vice versa. What I liked about it when I turned the film on is base defense, how I know it. You know, during my years at the University of Kansas, we played base defense almost all the time. I played offense, and I could call our defense. You could hear the, the, the late, great Bill Young say, base cover four 100 times of practice. All we did was play four, 
four down linemen, three linebackers, <clears throat> that guy that you bump out over the box is going to have to be a good player. You know, guys that we've had there, James Holt, Eric Washington, uh, Banks Floodman, you know, someone, you know, Nick Reed, guys that can play over number two and defend the flat, defend passes, read stuff, and then come up and be, a, a, a you know, someone that can make plays in the running game. I like, I loved it for that reason. Because with all the speed that people play with and pace in terms of no huddle, base defense is important because you don't have to sub. If you can cover wide receiver groups, three, four wide receiver groups with base defense, you don't have to sub. You can get comfortable and play consistently one defense without a lot of fluff, without a lot of movement. And I think they'll benefit from that. Yeah, I was reading a quote, and we don't know specifically who's going to come over from the coaching staff. I know there have been reports from media outlets, but nothing officially announced by KU. But I was reading a quote from from uh, Brian Borland, who was the D.C. at Wisconsin Whitewater. It was the D.C. at Buffalo. He's been with Leipold for 14 years, I believe, 14 straight seasons. And one of his quotes was that he said that, um, that, that, that with continuity, it, it, he— they preach it from a scheme standpoint and they coach the hell out of it. Like the idea that you're going to come in as a freshman and you're basically going to be running the exact same thing by the time you're a senior. And one of the quotes that he said was that he thought that coaching technique was a lost art in college football. Do you, do you see that? Do you feel like coaching technique is something that isn't um, maybe as big of an emphasis now for, for schools and for programs as it was? Uh, I don't know. 5, 10, 15 years ago? I can't say that definitively because, you know, I don't I don't watch every team. College football games are long. We've had this conversation. Uh, <laughs> but watching Kansas, I do see that that's something that's been a void in the past. Um, just just how defense and how they run, what they run, and the complications associated with that. I think Texas Tech is a good example um, for Kansas fans to understand is that KU in that final Texas Tech game, they did not do a lot of movement. They did not do a lot of sub packages. They lined up and played base defense. What that allows people to do is you teach defense and offense by rules. If you teach it by rules, then what you're facing and the look doesn't matter as much. So if it's three wideouts lined up in a bunch or three wideouts lined up, you know, all evenly spaced, you're playing rules. You're not playing formations. So I think that's what they're hinting at is that when you teach technique, when you're teaching style, when you're teaching rules, the looks don't matter, the pace doesn't matter, the opponent doesn't matter. We know what their preferences are. We know what their tendencies are. But what we know is that we're going to line up and play to our rules and stop people. And that's what he means by teaching technique. That's not easy to have a group. A lot of times you see movement and packages and different personnel groupings because they don't feel like they can stand up and play defense. But you watch a team like Notre Dame who made it to the Final Four last year. They were a good example of a team that played a lot of base defense and, and were one of the top defense uh, teams in the nation. The other parts of your continuity, being with someone for 14 years, I think that gives you an understanding of what you're looking at in a prospect. You have 14 years of history of 20, 30, 40 guys that played this spot, and you're like, ooh, he reminds me of so-and-so. He's got, this, he's got a similar skill set of so-and-so back in 2017. Remember when we had so-and-so in 2017, similar body type, similar speed, probably a little better here. So you have a whole Rolodex of history of working in the same group with the head coach, offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator, and quarterback coach, where you're seeing the same type of players. You've got to live through their whole career. So you saw what they were when they were young. 
you saw what they were when they finished. So when you're evaluating prospects, you can see some of those similarities, and it clicks amongst all of you. You'll say, ooh, yeah, that's something that we were able to get out of so-and-so six years ago, seven years ago, eight years ago. It kind of reminds me of almost like high school stats. In high school, that's almost always how it goes. This guy reminds me of so-and-so. Maybe we can fit him into, you know, it helps you fit style because you know what you've been doing all this time. And especially for this staff who's done a lot of different things, uh, especially offensively over the, over the course of the six years at Buffalo and Wisconsin Whitewater. So I think that continuity gives you a, a clear understanding of how you're evaluating, what you're evaluating, and where to fit them. He's Brandon McAnderson. You can hear him here every Friday, especially during football season. BMAC, great stuff. Thank you for the time as always, man. All right, man. Have a good one. All righty. That is Brandon McAnderson. He's Derek Johns, and I'm Nick Schwert. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Okay, I got a little breaking news for you. This important PSA is brought to you by Manscaped.com. This is your pubic service announcement and the news you've all been waiting for. The Manscaped engineering team has confirmed that they have successfully created the Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, which is now available for purchase in the USA and Canada. This new trimmer was just released only moments ago, and we are one of the first to get our hands on it and share the news. Join over 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer for you. 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code RCST at manscaped.com. I'm lucky enough to be one of the first people to try the new 4.0. I am blown away by the performance. The craftsmanship and details on the 4.0 are next level. I, like many of you, have dealt with a plethora of issues getting my nether regions in order. I used to always take a belt or a wooden rod to bite down on in the shower just waiting for that first nick or cut because you knew it was inevitable. Not with the Lawnmower 4.0. Their advanced ceramic blade and skin-safe technology is so good that it almost seems as if Manscaped worked with Elon Musk's engineers to ensure your testes are as safe as possible. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code RCST at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. And use the code RCST. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. I don't know if you guys heard Hawk Talk last night, Brian Haney with the new football coach, Lance Leipold. So, B. Haney's got uh, a little bit more time around the head coach than most of us, so maybe, hopefully, he can share some insights on the new leader of the Kansas football program. The voice of the Jayhawks joins us now on the show. Brian, you saw the press conference earlier this week. You got to spend an hour with Coach Leipold last night. What's your sort of takeaway of getting to spend some time around this guy? Well, he's a really impressive guy, both on the air and away from it. I think what you see is what you get. Very straightforward. Strong family man. I mean, he was texting his wife and his kids during the commercial breaks in probably three of our five commercial breaks last night because they were listening back home in Buffalo and wanting to make sure he was taken care of on his birthday and all that stuff and, <laughs> and enjoying listening for the first time to a Hawk Talk episode. And I put him on the spot with one question, and I think he misunderstood me, but I said, who's the best athlete in the family? Because he'd been talking about his, his wife, his daughter, and his son. His wife is the head coach of the family. That's Kelly. Uh, Lindsay is a volleyball player at Stetson, and then Landon is a uh, eighth-grade quarterback 
up there in Buffalo that apparently is pretty good. And I said, who's the best athlete in the family? And I think he thought I meant between him and his son, like on the boys' side. He goes, oh, it's, it's Landon. And then immediately his daughter starts blowing up his phone, and I think he was more concerned with letting her down. And so we went to the next commercial break. He's like, oh, I'm in trouble. And, and so, of course, I felt bad. Uh, but we, we got that rectified, I think. But the point is, he's just such a down-to-earth good dude, and the fact that he's meeting with 25 players a day for four days straight to knock out sit-downs with each and every one of the players he possibly could, and is largely talking about them as individuals, them as you know human beings that are there to study first and play football second, and getting to know them like he would if he was recruiting them three, four years earlier, says a lot about the, the type of character he has, the type of leader he is, and it makes you believe uh, with even more authenticity some of those tweets that were out there a week ago from you know, Buffalo players that referenced him as a father figure and talked about just the bond that, that they had with him and, and what a great leader he was because he genuinely cares and invests in his players. So I saw that firsthand last night. And then, you know, for a guy who's celebrating his 57th birthday, but his family's back home, he stayed at Johnny's and, and ate his pizza and his birthday cake that we had for him with his staff that came out and uh, we couldn't talk specifics on the staff because a lot of that's still fluid and so we had specific instruction not to dive into that but for the people that were there uh, you know both some names that I had never seen before because I haven't met them yet and and some you know returning Kansas guys they all gathered around and had a slice of birthday cake and, and there he was holding court at the end of a long table of about 20 people and enjoying his birthday in his new city and uh, just just a really down to earth unassuming good guy and on top of that you can tell he works his tail off i think one of the interesting questions he got was uh, from the fans that is what's your pregame ritual and he said he doesn't really have anything to to settle down before the game or get his mind clear he just likes to grab the ipad and watch more and more game film leading up to the moments of, of, of kickoff because he wants to be as crazy prepared as he possibly can be and so he relaxes and gets his mind right by diving back in even deeper on the game preparations. And you certainly love the sound of that. So really enjoyed him last night. I enjoyed the, the conversations we had on Saturday around the spring game. I had asked him about, you know, who made him into the man he is today. And he referenced his father, who was a high school basketball coach and athletic director. It really sounded similar to Bill Self's upbringing and the influence that Coach Self's father has been in his life. Uh, the only difference is Coach Leipold's dad passed away in February, and he got kind of emotional in talking about that, that he knows that his dad would be awfully proud, you know, watching this Kansas opportunity unfold. So that was special, too, and that was from Saturday's broadcast, if anybody was listening at halftime of the spring game. But certainly uh, it's been great first and second impressions with the head coach. Can't wait to work with him. And like I said, I really believe he's what you see is what you get, as transparent, authentic, as genuine as, as you could possibly come across in your first week on the job. You mentioned having all these sit-down meetings, these one-on-ones with the players on the roster. How typical is that for a coach that's taken over a program like that, to not just have a, a big meeting with the team, but to sit down with each individual player like that? I mean, I think you do it eventually over the course of, you know, uh, depending on when you got hired, like a fall, like in Les Miles' case, he got hired in mid-November. You got a little bit of time before the guys slip out the door for winter break, but you probably do it over the course of the winter months leading into the spring. In this case, he wanted to knock everybody out 
before they finished up finals week and went home for the, the summertime, or at least the start of the summer. And so he made a priority to sit down with every guy. And if you're talking about 25 in one day, I was trying to do the math on that. I mean, that's 20 minutes per meeting for eight hours straight, and, and that gets you to 24 guys. And these are, you know, legitimate sit down, you know, and, and, and get to know each other type meetings. It's not like speed dating with Derek Johnson where you're, you know, sitting down for two minutes and then you're on to the next table. Actually, he's a married guy. So yeah, that's right. On Don't get him in trouble. But uh, sorry, Mrs. Johnson, if you're listening, I apologize. But uh, by the way, Nick would be a fascinating speed dater because he would keep the conversation rolling. If you had two minutes with the guy, I feel like you'd be riveted the whole time through, you know? <laughs> so so let's just put a pin in that and come back to there it. There we but go. The point is, that's not what these Coach Leipold sit-downs are about. I mean, this is a, a lengthy, legitimate conversation about the player's background, his upbringing, get to know the family, get to know his aspirations beyond football, and then talk a little football, too, about what he sees for the program. And so I do think it's rare to squeeze all those in right away on top of trying to fortify – you know, the, the recruiting landscape of, of where they're at and being updated on all that stuff and getting used to a staff with more people on it, more resources than he's ever had before, which I know he's excited about, but that's, that's all the more people to try to make first impressions with and, and get marching orders to so they can begin what they're doing for him. But uh, I, I think he's done exceptionally well in managing his time and, and in making indelible marks and great first impressions on these you know, student-athletes that he's trying to keep here. And you know, earlier today, Prior to us sitting out and have this conversation, there's a, a picture tweeted out by Kenny Logan holding that number one jersey next to Coach Leipold, and, and uh, you could tell Coach really made an impression on him. And I think for Kansas fans, nervously wondering who's going to stay, will there be any more uh, defections after one we saw earlier this week on the D-line, he's doing everything he can to, to make that great first impression and to win these guys over, having to recruit them in a very small window of time and show them that I may not be the guy you signed up to play for, but the same objectives that you signed up to come here and achieve are absolutely still there, and I think we can accomplish them together, and I think he's doing a great job of making that pitch to his players. Yeah, when I saw that tweet from Kenny Logan, it felt more than just a uh, guy voicing his support for the new coach because Kenny Logan last year certainly seemed like he emerged as one of the leaders on the defense and on the team. I'd imagine when when, it, when one of those types of guys comes out and, and makes a statement like that, that's that's a, a, a stamp of approval that probably carries quite a bit of weight in that locker room. really does. It really does because you're right. He's, he's a charismatic guy that uh, has become a leader in a short amount of time here over the first couple of seasons that he's been on campus and projects to be one of your integral players on the defense going forward. And, uh, you know, to see him step up and, and make that statement as a kid that's not from here and probably has done enough on the field to, you know, at least have other options outside of, of Kansas in the Big 12. He's risen from Florida, obviously. His brother was a star with the Gators. And, uh, a guy that, that probably, you know, if, if he wanted to, to look elsewhere, might at least get a sniff or two. The fact that he's saying, hey, I'm, I'm all in. I'm bought in on this new coach. I want to be a Jayhawk and finish what I started here. That has to resonate with some of the other guys that aren't from here and uh, maybe committed because of the name of the previous head coach or something like that, you know, that shows that, that he's completely invested and all in like you'd want him to be and, and uh, isn't looking for greener pastures just because there's been a curveball thrown his way. And in this day and age of the transfer portal, more player movement than we've ever seen before times 10 to see guys 
follow through and honor the commitment, even though there's a little bit of adversity or a little bit of uh, a surprise, you know, in, in how they projected their career to go or who they'd be playing for. That's a breath of fresh air. And that's delightful to see because I think that the rules that the NCAA has now put in place is, is kind of a scary Pandora's box where the first sign of adversity comes, whether it's a lack of playing time or the coach reacts too much or the coach changed or something like that. And guys are looking to take the chicken exit and escape on out. And I hate to use the term chicken exit because in some cases they've got reasonable reasons to move on, but in a lot of cases they don't. And I, and I think, you know, the, the lessons learned of the formative years of your college days, 18 to 22 years old, whether you're a student athlete or just a student, you know, you're going to go through some surprises. You're going to go through some adversity. And I don't want to perpetuate a culture where, you know, at the first sign of any of that, you're looking for, uh, you know, an alternative route. And so when you see one of the team leaders step up and, and make that social media tweet as simple as it was, a picture and a few words, I think it says a lot and probably is, is uh, a reassuring directive to other guys that, that might be, you know, unsure about what's this going to look like with the new guy and what's my position coach going to look like and all that. And have Kenny Logan say that I think was a good thing for Kansas and hopefully a sign of things to come. And you look at the first week, they really only had one uh, you know notable defection at this point. I think that, that speaks volumes to what we talked about earlier of Coach Lightbolt coming in, trying to establish an instantaneous rapport and, and trying to, to calm any waters that could have been choppy when you have a turnover atop a program, which is going to be the case anywhere, but especially in this year of the changing chance reporter rules for him to step in and, and try to meet with everybody as intentionally uh, and genuinely as he has. I, I think, obviously, the, uh, the proof's in the pudding here with the number of guys that have remained true to Kansas to this point. Talking to the voice of the Jayhawks, Brian Haney here on Rock Jock Sports Talk. Certainly unique timing for a coach to be taking over a program first week of May. Uh, how do you think that timeline in this sort of compacted off season changes things? What are you most interested to see play out over these next couple of months as as Leipold and and, and this staff that he's going to be assembling kind of get their footing and try to establish this culture and not just you know set the groundwork for that, but also focus on the task at hand, which is you got a season starting up here in a couple of months. Yeah, how does it change things? Well, zero spring ball for him. And as I understand it, he had so many people to shake hands with and, and media appointments during the game on Saturday. He didn't really get a chance to watch the game live until the end of the third quarter uh, because they were moving him around so much. and He had so many people to, to get in front of and not that you're going to garner a ton from three 12-minute quarters where you can't sack the quarterback. But the point is, not only was he not a part of the 15 practices, he didn't really even have a chance to, to observe it like he normally would want to. And so for a coach that's going to obviously bring in a lot of, of, of new coaches and, and in some cases new philosophy, you didn't have the benefit of the spring to, to start to, to get that playbook and that scheme entrenched in the minds of your key playmakers. And so they're really going to have to be behind the eight ball and getting guys ready. It does sound like it will be a 4-3 defense, um, you know, different than what we've seen under D.J. Elliott. Uh, consistent with what they've done at Buffalo and, and Wisconsin Whitewater before that. He said as much last night on Hawk Talk. Offensively, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what the scheme looks like and the play calling looks like because he's been a guy that has gone with his talent in recent years. And if they have 
uh, a prolific quarterback with capable receivers. They might pass a little bit more in a given year, but if, if the O-line and running back stable looks stronger than the next, they might be, you know, run first, pass second. But I like a coach that's a little bit flexible and fluid in that regard and can adjust and not be set in just one particular way of doing things. But regardless of what he tries to implement, regardless of how much he tries to reinvent the wheel, He's obviously operating at a disadvantage without having spring ball, and um, clearly the team had it. And and who knows if he'll you know take some of what Coach DeBoard and Coach Jones were putting in, uh, and and make some of that transferable with what he wants to do offensively. We'll just have to wait and see. You asked what am I most interested to see, and and how does the timing make it unique? That right there is my answer. Just seeing what he tries to pull off in terms of scheme changes and how effective he's able to do it with, you know, obviously a limited amount of, of preseason time to install stuff. And then there exists the possibility that the starting quarterback might not even be on campus right now. Um, and I'm not suggesting that he isn't, but clearly there's, there's a possibility that exists that uh, a player I can't mention until he gets here due to compliance rules could still be very much in the mix. And, and you know, for Jalen Daniels, who – didn't have much of an off season as, as he was working his way back, uh, you know, from, from the injury he dealt with late last season. It was a spring that probably didn't yield quite the results that he would have hoped to have had, but we still have high hopes in him, absolutely. And you have other guys like Miles Kendrick that are going to compete at that spot as well. But possibility exists that your QB1 isn't even here yet. So that kind of throws an unpredictable wrench in the system, too. So as we sit here and talk on May the 7th about what it could look like on September 1st, there, there's a lot of things that are going to have to uh, be decided upon, be attempted to be installed, and, and also play out in terms of positional competition that make this a really tough team to game plan for. And I hate to be one of those early September opponents because it's going to be hard to know what to expect exactly. Which, which maybe is a slight advantage to Kansas, but certainly overall it's a disadvantage when you're operating against the clock like he will be compared to a typical off-season coaching change when you've had five months on campus uh, you know, as you break for the summer, uh, short break that these guys get, and, and part of those five months would have been 15 practices together. Obviously, Coach Leipold isn't going to have that luxury. All right, Brian, before I let you go, uh, as you know, we are in the middle of RCST trivia right now. We just got through our sizzling 16 round this week, so the great eight, yes, that is trademarked, is set to begin next week. I know you've been following along with the rest of our listeners, so I wanted to provide you the opportunity to to put your knowledge to the test. I know that they're amongst the great. You're not able to compete for obvious reasons, but... I thought maybe a little bit of exhibition round would get the juices flowing for you. Are you game? I like that. Well, I'm always game. I'm never going to say no. I love how you phrased it, though. You're a true salesman. I want to provide you <laughs> with the opportunity to embarrass yourself no. by going 0 for 4. I, I heard that one of my favorite writers went 0 for 4. We won't name names, right. but normally he's the smartest guy in the room. Mm-hmm. So I feel a little bit better that Nessie Jewell went 0 for 4 at the start of the week. <laughs> I didn't say his name. Uh, because if I end up going, you know, one for four, at least I'm batting 250. I don't know. But I am a little nervous, to be honest, being put on the spot like this because people expect us to, to be quick on our feet and know all these things. But I know from 10 years of sitting in your chair, as much as you think as the question asker is yeah. obvious and as much as those of us driving around in our cars think it's obvious, 
when you yourself are on the hot seat, it's mm-hmm. amazing how quickly the answer evades you and your mind goes blank, and, and all of a sudden it's just not there. So to, to one of my favorite writers, but apparently, and I didn't hear it, but, but apparently you know, didn't have his best showing, I feel for you, brother. And maybe, if anything, I'll join you in the open floor ranks and we'll no. raise a glass together. But, no, I'm happy to do it. Uh, I was uh, following along as often as I can. I had to tear up my brackets after the round of 32 because I – in that uh, East region, I went all chalk, and clearly it, it blew up on me. So my, my bracket is officially busted, but would love to participate with a couple of questions today. I actually learned a new ter- a term, a uh, sports phrase uh, that I'd never heard before. I learned it this week. It's called self-handicapping. I think that's what you just did. You set yourself up to say, ah, I'm probably going to go 0 for 4. That way, if you go 4 for 4, you're seen as a genius. If you go 0 for 4, it's like, see, I told you. I told you this was going to happen. So that's a next level move <laughs> by a true pro. I think you're going to that's do one those, That's one of those terms that has multiple definitions. If you look it up, though, you can also, under the Webster's definition of self handicapping, see picking Kansas to win the Big 12 every <laughs> single year. Self handicapping. Yep, there you go. That's actually Down. A, that's a good one. Um, okay, so here's how it's going to work I'm going to give you 30 seconds. Your clock starts as soon as I get done asking the question. I will play you a five-second warning. So don't think about the time. Be cognizant of it. I doubt you're going to need 30 seconds because, as I said, you're a pro's pro. Brian, you ready to go, man? You're on the hot seat. Okay, let's do it. All right, first question. The KU record for most career NCAA tournament assists is 104 by what guard who played at Kansas from 2002 to 2005? That one was an easy one. See, I wanted to get wanted to get you warmed up here. Now we'll move on to a slightly more difficult question. In 1966, Kansas lost in the regional final when JoJo White was called out of bounds. A movie was made about the team Kansas lost to. What was that school's name? The movie was Glory Road, and the school was Texas Western. Boom. It was in Lubbock, Texas. Wow. See, he's just adding little footnotes, trying to get bonus points here. Okay. Okay, two for two. That's right. self handicapping. Yeah. All right, two for two. Things are getting tense. Brian Haney already off to a hot start. Can he keep it going? Two more questions to go. Brian, this Oklahoma duo tied the KU opponent record for most points by two players against the Jayhawks in 2016. Who was that duo? Wow. Okay, so Buddy Heald was one of them. I was at Texas Tech at the time. I was watching this game from my living room in Lubbock. Wait, do I have 30 seconds per answer or for the whole thing? You have 30 seconds per answer, and you're exhausting a lot of it with this explanation right now, Brian. (laughs) I was watching it from my living room, watching uh, Devontae and Frank chase him around all day. Trying to think who else was on that team. Oh, I'm drawing a huge blank here. Uh, I'll go Brady Manning. No, that was Trey Young's freshman year. Oh. No, that was Trey Young's freshman year. Jordan. I was trying to think of, of some random stiff that, that chipped in like 14 in addition to Buddy's 50. Ryan Spangler uh, would have been that random stiff, but uh, <laughs> the correct answer was actually Jordan Woodard. Jordan Woodard was oh, the he's other player. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. And I believe Jordan Woodard. I, look me up on this, Derek, but didn't he go to the same high school as Bill Self, Edmund Memorial? Um, Maybe. 
Yeah, Derek's looking it up right now. Jordan Woodard did go, yeah, to Edmond Memorial in Edmond, Oklahoma. This is me fishing for additional points. (laughs) You don't get There's no such thing as bonus points in RCST trivia. (laughs) But if you're going to miss one, at least it's one that you're not naming KU players. That's right. right? Okay, so here's the— Here's the deal, Brian. And I'm going to lobby to the appeals committee to get half a point for that one. They're so I'm very, actually two and a half out Yeah, of they're very strict. Here's the deal. you got one question left. It's in our very difficult tier of questions. So our rule that we've made this year is even if even if you, you lose your competition when you're competing against no one, if you get one of these questions right, you automatically receive an RCST hat, a custom Rock Chalk Sports Talk hat, which you can't buy these in the store. So this is very valuable. All you got to do is knock down your final question, Brian. Here we go. Brian, name one team that Kansas played in its inaugural basketball season back in 1898 and 1899. Wow. How many games are in the season? 11. 11. I probably can't ask you questions. Um, Well, we always joke about Topeka YMCA. I'm going to go... I'm debating between Oklahoma A&M or Kansas City YMCA. Um, can I just say YMCA? You cannot. I have to specify a town in which the, the young men's yes. athletic club would be? Yes. Uh, okay. Kansas City YMCA. Final answer. Wow! He nailed it at the buzzer. They actually played <laughs> two games against Kansas City YMCA. Three games against Topeka YMCA, one against the Lawrence YMCA. That's why I wouldn't just let you say YMCA. Also, Haskell, Kansas City AC. They played Independence twice, and William Jewell went seven and four that first season under Coach Naismith. So congratulations, man! You went three for wow. three for four, and you nailed a very hard question, which is a rarity here in RCST trivia. Derek, can you play us out to break with some village people of the YMCA? <laughs> I feel like that would be a fitting way to close down my trivia performance with you guys. And, and make sure Nessie Jewell knows that I went three and a half out of four. Or even three if you have to round down. That's fine. I, I, uh, I'd imagine he's, he normally he's the smartest guy in the room. So, uh, But yeah, I actually have seen the village people live in person. I am Arlen, and they play. And get, went to see the, Bay the next day in Tampa Bay. This was part of my father's son stadium tour. And Flo Rida close down the post-game <laughs> concert for the race. The difference between the village people and Flo Rida from one night to the next, my goodness. I mean, that's that's like going from, uh, I guess, K-State basketball or KU basketball. It's that big of a gap, but indifference. But, uh, but yeah, we had some fun on that trip, no doubt. So give me that village people. I'm just stalling for you right now, Derek, so you can queue it up. Because we're all going to do the dance moves together. Unless, of course, you're driving. Then don't drive and do the dance moves. Pull over. But get set to throw those arms in the air. Because whether it's Topeka YMCA, Kansas City YMCA, or Lawrence YMCA, a big part of that 11-game schedule way back in 1898 was the Y, the M, and the CA. <laughs> as you heard right here on RCST Trivia, baby. Join with us. It's fun to stay at the It's fun to stay at the Come on, Nick, you're in on this. You can get a good meal. Oh, you can hang out with all the boys. Maybe not that far. <laughs> but yeah, it's a lot of fun. 
He is the voice of the Jayhawks, Brian Haney, a true showman, joining us on Rock Chuck Sports Talk. <laughs> Have a good weekend, Brian. Thanks, fellas.